Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Thanks for checking out this feed of my favorite interviews and best guests over the last seven years. Whether it's your first time or you're already in a deep dive, make sure you head to billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Again, that is billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions all apply. See website for details. Don Cheeto is here. I don't know why this took so long. I've had a podcast for 13 years. I don't know where you've been. I don't yeah. know why you've been so hard to book. I blame you. I blame you. <laughs> <laughs> I blame myself. You've been in a lot of my favorite movies. You know, it's funny. So I'm going way back, but... So Boogie Nights is like a top five movie to me. And the other night, my wife and my daughter were out of the house. My son was at a sleepover. I was all by myself. And I'm like, this is great. I'm just going to watch TV. I'll watch something I've never seen before. And I was flicking channels and it was the start of Boogie Nights. And I was like, ah, fuck it. And I just watched it again. I don't know. I don't know what it is about that movie. What is it about that movie? You must get asked about it a million times, right? I mean, I think it's, it's just... It's a it's an amazing film, obviously. Uh, it's sort of two films tonally. Yeah, and, yeah. What it what it's able to do, and you know, I I met Paul uh, because of Carl Franklin, who directed Devil in a Blue Dress, and uh, he I don't I don't remember how he met Paul, but he said this this kid you got to meet this kid. He's got this movie. The movie's amazing. Uh, he wants you to play a part in it, and it's about the porno industry. I was like, uh, my parents are still alive, so I don't. I don't think that's going to happen. And he said, no, you got to meet him. He's, he's really smart. And uh, he's kind of a phenom. So I met with Paul and he was the most confident, you know, self-assured dude I had ever met. And uh, I said, you know, this is just going to be jokes. And, and I read the script and the script was like 167 pages long or something like that. It was, a, it was just massive, but it was very technical and it had all the camera moves in it and all of the things he was going to do with the film in it that weren't really about story at all. It was just how he was going to pull it off. And it was kind of confusing. 
And I remember asking him, I said, are we just going to be like doing a bunch of jokes about, you know, porn industry? And he's like, just, just, you know, just trust me. Okay. You're going to be sad if you say no to this movie. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to wish you had said yes, if you pass on this. Well, you, you would have been sad. I would have been. I think he was right. He was absolutely right. You know, and, and he pats himself on the back for being very right about all the things he's right about all the time. You know, well, he's a lot like you. He's now all these years later, he's had this incredible career. But when we had him on the podcast about 18 months ago, I couldn't resist. Like, look, I got it. We got to talk about this movie. And it was pretty cool to listen to him talk about it because it was so early in his career. Yeah. You know, and then he follows it up with Magnolia, which was so personal and is a movie that he all these years later kind of feels conflicted about because there are all these things he would probably do differently with that one. With Boogie Nights, I feel like he feels pretty good about what it was. Yeah, I, I I think he does. I think he feels like he achieved everything he wanted to achieve. And I remember sitting with him at the at the screening, at one of the early screenings of it. And when the movie takes that turn right after Little Bill tops himself. Yeah. Looks at me and goes, okay, jokes, giggles, you get it? And I was like, oh, I get it. You know, and that and it's rare to to be able to do that in a film and still like have the audience stay with you because People want to go on a certain kind of a ride. And then when it it turns and makes you sort of consider the whole other side of this, I think he was very artful and, and, and very masterful at how, at how he pulled that off. Well, one of the fun things about rewatching it 23 years later is just the cast and all of these people at this, you know, in some cases, really early point of their careers. You know, Mark Wahlberg was still had the Marky Mark kind of stigma to him. Philip Seymour Hoffman was like the kid from Scent of a Woman. And you go on, John C. Riley. I barely knew who he was. You, yeah. I'd only seen you in one movie. And you go on and on. And it was all these people that have now had these full careers that I have this whole history with. And you watch a movie like that. And it's like seeing a home movie of them really early almost. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, if not the most important aspect uh, of being able to be a good director is being able to cast well. And being able to find the people that you're going to be able to get. I mean, I don't think anyone expected Mark Wahlberg's performance in that. And it was the best of anything he's ever done, I, I believe. Um, and everyone, you go down the line, everybody that you mentioned, I think everyone really pulls in at a, a, a great performance. And no one is trying to stick out above, you know what I mean? It was a very ensemble feel, uh, feel to making it. There was a very big no asshole rule. And yeah. everybody just, you know, believed in Paul and believed in his ability and believed in in what it was he was trying to do and he knew everything that he wanted to do there was no it was there was no wishy-washy uh, nature to how he approached anything you know you often do movies and you kind of in it and you're like I don't know if the director knows what he wants Paul right. knew it from the very beginning and was stayed true it true to it to the, to the very end also had a great what if where you have it could have been Leo in the in the Wahlberg part and he turns it down. And yep. just thinking that pre-Titanic Leo as Dirk Diggler, what kind of movie that is. I actually think it worked out correctly, but it's an interesting what if. Yeah, I can't imagine another, I can't ana- imagine another actor in that part. I think Mark was just amazing. And some of the the scenes that you're watching, I'm, I'm like, is this improv? I mean, we didn't really do a lot of improv. We would sometimes do little things that Paul would allow in, but he was pretty, you know, pretty secure in what he wrote and, and, and kind of a stickler about his words and what he wanted to be done. Um, but yeah, I can't imagine anyone other than Mark in that role. Me neither. You had some great parts in the nineties as you're becoming you, 
Yeah. What? How? How did you know what parts to gravitate toward, and how important was the director and the whole concept of it? I don't think I ever really knew the director is something that became very important to me. You know, as I learned that that was the most important seat. Uh, yeah. And really started to understand you needed to be under the helm of someone who had a clear, uh, a clear idea of what it is they were going after. Um, but I was, I was very, for no other reason than I just decided I was going to be, I was just very picky. I was always just very picky about what I wanted to do. And I also wanted to do a lot of different things. You know, I came out of, of school. uh, I went to California Institute of the Arts. And one of the things that you know, we really had for us in school was a huge variety. You know, we do Moliere, we do Shakespeare, we do August Wilson, we do Fugard, we do, we just did, a, you know, uh, we just did a lot of different things. And that was something that became what I wanted to to do as I went, went forward in my career. I wanted to play a lot of different roles. I wanted to try to inhabit a lot of different characters. So a lot of the yeses that I would you know, give to a role, a lot of the, you know, me saying yes to a part was about, oh, this is something that an area I haven't visited before, a story I haven't done, characters I haven't really filled out. Just It was just more of I wanted to keep playing and wanted to keep expanding um, my, my toolbox. So that's what it was about. Uh, and directors really, like I said, became something to focus on. I was just very fortunate to work with a lot of great directors. Just, just They just were the ones that were directing these movies. So I don't think it was a surprise that the, the roles that I picked in these interesting projects had directors who were very, uh, very skilled as well. Well, it helped that you were talented too. And they, and they wanted to work with you. It's, you know, you get, I think you get half credit, but I think so, half. so you, cause I remember devil in a blue dress. It was like, who's that? Yeah. Then, then you did the goat. Yeah. And I had been, yeah, I'm a huge basketball guy. And when I found out it was eight, was it HBO or Showtime? I can't remember. It was an HBO movie. Yeah. Yeah. And when they, I was like, oh, they're doing the goat. Cause I had read the city game by Pete Axlom. So I knew, yeah. you know, the, the legend of him, there's no footage of him, obviously you just, how are they going to do this? It's such a depressing story. And, and then it was really, you know, obviously it was what it was and it's worth, I don't know. Does that movie still exist? Is it streaming yeah. anywhere? I think you can get it on Amazon. I mean, I think you can get anything on Amazon. <laughs> oh, cause I never see it, but I, I would write for the younger people out there. I would recommend checking it out because it's he's this famous street legend that's right who um was kind of the lost great what if guy from the playground scene in the 60s and you always heard the stories but then to actually make a movie about him is pretty yeah it's pretty cool greatest player that no one's ever heard of or something like that that you've never heard of um and one of the most amazing things about that was that you know earl was there the whole time so, you know, getting to really ask him about these stories and to, it was both intimidating and, you know, very, uh, it, it was very deep to have him around and watch and watch these stories and have him say, yeah, that's, that's, this is what I was going through. And it was exactly like this. And I did lose a couple years at one point where I didn't, he lost years of his life, wasn't aware that years had passed. Um, and then to really see the story that how he was able to turn that around with that, yeah. you know, that Rucker game and really inspire so many young people and bring so many young people up 
that was uh, it was great to see. And it was always great to see him interact with kids. He was just really a, had a big heart that ultimately was a heavy diet of congestive heart failure. Um, but just a very sweet man and just very giving and, and generous the whole time. And people don't realize you got cast because you have a 54-inch vertical leap. Yeah, it and was, was 50, not- 55. Now it's 54. I lost an inch. <laughs> You're like, I'll, I'll hit all the duck seats myself. So then it, then you end up in out of sight with Soderbergh and then it, then it's off. Then, then at that point you're getting, uh, you're, you're getting a lot of the roles. I'm sure you probably wanted. What did you learn from Soderbergh? No, I think it was, it's always been, you know, it's, it's, it, it looks like that, but it had always been a grind. It had always yeah? been. Oh yeah, for sure. And so, and I think that's probably my story is not, you know, dissimilar to a lot of people in my position. Um, a lot of young black actors at that time. It was never a layup. It was always, always a grind. I was very fortunate that I got to be in the, the films that I, I wanted to be in. And yeah. uh, to really craft, you know, and, and grow relationships within the business that would allow me to continue that. And I had good representation always. Um, but yeah, it was a, it, 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 it was a grind. It was a grind. Um, and I met Steven at a table read for Out of Sight. Um, the casting director at that time, and I'm sorry, I'm going to go up on her name, but she uh, just said, can you come to this table read? And it became kind of clear, like halfway through the table read, that they were like, well, yeah, we want you to play the part. Uh, and that started this, you know, great relationship. Steven and I are supposed to do a new a movie now if this virus thing ever, you know, steps back. Uh, but I learned a lot from Steven. I've, I've been, and I think it's now the fifth time I've worked with him. Uh, and he's just another very clear, very focused, um, but not, you know, there's always a moment in a Steven Soderbergh movie that I've worked on that like week two or three where he goes, oh, I finally know what this movie's about. Like he's, it's, you know, he's like, oh, I've, I finally figured out. You wouldn't know that, but yeah. he you know, he's, lets it come to him. You know, he's a director who you show up on the set for the scene and he's like, all right, show me. He's, he's not like, you stand here, you stand here, you go there. He's like, show me. And then he kind of figures it out with you. He operates. So he's very, he's right there with you. It's not like he's sitting behind a monitor and you're, you know, half an inch tall and he doesn't really see what's happening. He's right up close. So you know that he's, he's a part of the process in a way that's very intimate. That's a really special movie because it could come out right now and probably be the exact same movie. I think oh. there's certain 1990s movies that are just completely timeless, and that's one of them. That's one of them, too, and and very underrated. And it's still, like, every year people pick up on it more and more and more. It's just... A, oh, yeah. still holds together. It's a really good movie. Well, I remember you also, you played Sammy. Yeah. With the Rat Pack, which I thought was one of the best TV movies. I love that, because I'd always been fascinated by the, uh, the Rat Pack. But did you dive into all the Sammy research? Because he's... Oh, One of the secretly most fa- most fascinating people ever. 100%. Had to do all of that. And that, and that was an interesting one, too, because in the movie, um, on the page, when I, when I got it, they had never really dealt with race for Sammy. They had never really dealt with, other than like the big sort of operatic scene that there was and the big idea about what he was facing in general with the world. They never dealt with what he was dealing with inside those own relationships with his friends. And I, and, and, you know, in Sammy's books, he never really talked about it in either of the autobiographies. He never really talked about it. And I was like, there's no way that this didn't ever come up. 
this has to be something that we we explore. Even if he doesn't talk about it, we have to take the poetic license and deal with this. And it was never in the script and it hadn't been in the script. So every time that it would come up, something they offered it to me and I said, have you guys, what have you guys done about that part of the script? And they're like, oh, we're going to get to it. I'm like, well, when you get to it, send it to me and I'll see if I'm going to take the part. And it was weeks and weeks that they hadn't really, uh, the writer, uh, Carrie Salem, really good writer, they hadn't really come to it. And then Carrie wrote this couple of scenes that just hit, touched on it, but in a very impactful way. And then I kind of said, I want to have a moment when I'm performing where they can have the joke out front where he says, you know, I want to award the NAA, thank you for the NAACP for this thing. Or he says some racist thing to Sammy, some joke. And I said, I just want to be able to turn upstage and have the camera upstage and have, I don't have to say anything. I just want to show the reaction to that. And then I can turn back around and put the smile on and just be Sammy again. And those little moments, I think, really informed it. But once we finally agreed to do that, I had two weeks left to take to yeah. get ready, which meant it was just, I had to cram. So I had gun twirling lessons. I had drum lessons. I had trumpet lessons. And Savion Glover was the tap instructor, which was worth doing it alone. Just that alone was worth doing it. So I got to, you know, learn how to tap from Savion Glover, you know, greatest tap dancer a lot. Um, and it was just, uh, it, it was great. And, you know, getting to work with all those guys. Um, it's a really good one. It's one of the best TV movies ever, I think. You yeah. know, I think out of all the guys from that era, he's the one that would be the best Netflix or Hulu Mad Men style show if you built it around a real person. Because he's straddling these two worlds, right? He's at least, he's, <laughs> well, yeah, maybe more, uh, where he's like the black face for white people, basically. They really, one of the only ones they have in their lives at that point. But then he has this whole different meaning to black people and he's doing all this under the radar stuff nobody knows about for the black community. So I, it's really like a guy who was living two lives at the same time. And I always felt like in a movie, like the one you made, it, it just like scratched the surface for a split second. There's so much more there. So much more. And, and the talent off the charts, you know, just oh, yeah. unbelievable. Everything he did, he did at such a high level. It would be really hard to, It'd be, it'd be tricky casting as well. So it's a big, it's a big, it would be a big project. And there are people trying to develop that right now. In fact. And was missing an eye. And was missing an eye. How about that? And, and was still like the, the, an amazing performer. But yeah, I've always been fascinated by him. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment. So it's important to take care of them. I once got, a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. 
When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Do you feel like crash takes too much shit at this point? How do you feel looking back at it now? Uh, the, I've, the way I felt with it, about it before, you know, I was like, this isn't a perfect movie. I think it's got flaws. Um, but I can't think of any movies that don't. Um, but I appreciated what it was trying to take on. And I appreciated pushing that conversation out into the world, um, in a way that I hadn't seen done on film. And it's an allegory, you know, this, the movies, it's not meant to be taken exactly literally this there's a lot of what ifs there's a lot of sort of sliding doors in that movie i think some of that is missed on people like they're like you're telling me that this guy bumped into her at the same time and she bumped into him i'm like that's not exactly i think the the how we're supposed to be taking this film in we're supposed to be talking about the the intersections of these people's lives and how they might inform one another and you know a cross section of people but yeah i think it takes it takes a lot of shit and i don't it's it's fine. I think once you put something out in the world, that's you. That's what you've done. It's that's what it's for now. People get to decide. They're the jury. They're going to determine its value and its worth and what it means to them. And everybody's right. You know, the people that think it's shit are right. The people that think think it's great, they're right. That's about how you connect to a piece of of film, to a piece of of art. That's 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 how you take it in. That's the problem with awards, right? Ultimately, we're judging how art affects each human being. And, you know, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes there's a performance that is so clearly the best performance you've seen all year or some movie that's so powerful. But a lot of times we're all, it's going to hit everybody differently. Absolutely. And I think it was maybe Malcolm McDonald who said, said the only way to figure out who's the best in each one of these things is to have everybody do the same role, you know? who was the best in this role, who was the best in this movie, you know, but you were trying to, you can't, they're apples and oranges, you know, you can't compare half of these movies to each other. Titanic isn't trying to do the same thing that Crash is trying to do. We're not, you know, they're not even in the same worlds. True. So when putting those all up there and to compare them, and, and again, you know, these contests between artists, you know, it's just, we know what it is. It's not, it's, 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 about much more than just the award itself. Obviously, is you know commerce involved, and there's other things that we're trying to to other boxes we're trying to check off. Well, especially with the Oscars, where it took people forever to realize that the people who were voting the Oscars was a specific demographic that maybe didn't represent everybody who should be voting for the Oscars. They've made good strides the last few years. I I don't know when they'll get to the right place, but at least they've put some more thought into it the last few yeah. years. Yeah, I mean, that's it. And people don't understand how much of a campaign it is. You know, the general public isn't privy to how much work goes into people, you know, securing an Oscar nomination. Uh, there are Oscar consultants that just work during that period of time to figure out how you have, you know, best position yourself to get an Oscar. Uh, and and how it impacts a film. And, you know, I remember sitting at a table with an exec who I won't name during uh, Hotel Rwanda during that run. And we were at the Screen Actors Guild Awards, I think. And they, you know, we didn't get any Screen Actors Guild Award. And he said, well, 
if we're not gonna if we don't get an Oscar nomination, I'm not we're not putting any more money into the you know marketing for this movie. I was like, what? Were <laughs> he was like, yeah, that'd be a waste of money if if we don't get any more noms. That there's no reason to to try to even keep it out there in the theater. I was like, this movie is important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's another reason to keep it in the theaters than just is it making dough, but there's, you're bumping up against the, the real world of finance and commerce. And this, you know, this, these movies are made to make money. And if they don't, then you know, they have to go to the wayside. So it's, again, it's, it's something that when you peel it back, why awards are tricky because it's not just about the best. And I don't even think they say best anymore. It's just like, and the Oscar goes too. They, they can't even use that nomenclature anymore, which is I'm glad about because that's, it's not authentic. It's not real. Um, last, I would say six, seven years, you know, huge topic of our black actors and actresses getting the same opportunities as everybody else, which has really been a story of the last 30 years of Hollywood. But I feel like the last seven or eight, I remember I had Michael B. Jordan on a podcast once. And he said, I just want to get to get to the point where if there's a good part, they're not thinking like, oh, this is a part that should go to a black guy or, oh, this is a part for a white guy that is just like, what's the part? Let's all see who the, who the best person for the part is. When do, do, have we gotten better at this? Do you feel like we're headed in a better direction? Do you feel like you have more opportunities for parts that maybe you wouldn't have had 20 years ago? Uh, Sure. I mean, yeah, in some aspects, I think it cuts both ways. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's cyclical. I don't think we ever are at a point where we're not taking steps forward and steps back at the same, at the same time. Uh, And as studios try to figure out, you know, how to do the most important thing for their, on their color chart, which is green, you know, how to, how to make money you know, that's what's coming into consideration. You know, when all these black movies made money two or three years ago, everybody was going, well, I want, give me four of those, you know? And so it's, it's, it's kind of how it happens. And we had a moment, there was a moment in the eighties where it was that way. There's a moment in the nineties where it was that way. A lot of black movies in, around a certain theme were making Boys in the Hood, Minister Society. They were around a certain kind of a theme, but it was a moment again. And everybody, everybody in Hollywood's always trying to do something in the rearview mirror. They want to know what just worked. So, uh, yeah, the opportunities, there are more opportunities now. Um, I don't know that I ever want it necessarily to be at a place where the only consideration is, is this the right person for this role? I don't want to erase race. I don't want to erase gender. I don't want to erase sexual identity. I don't want to erase the things that I don't want to, I don't want to mute it down. I want to raise everything up so that those, the differences about us are unique and are celebrated and are important and they impact the story. Um, you know, I don't want to just ever take, decolorize the things and go, well, we're all just the same. So we can all have the same story. It's like, no, that's not the truth. We're not all the same. And that, and, and we shouldn't be striving to be all the same. That's not the goal. The goal is be whoever you are and we can all still share in this great expression. So I don't, I don't, I don't want that to ever become a non- issue because it's not ever a non-issue in real life. So let's really show what's going on and be who we are and, and use that in, as storytellers to our advantage to tell more you know, in-depth and interesting stories. Well, and it would seem like investing in the infrastructure that would produce more of those storytellers well, that's would the be the way, other way to really help. That's the only way you get there. I mean, you, you cannot 
And we haven't had that. You know, we haven't had an incubator for many years. We haven't had a uh, that sort of a proving ground that allows people to matriculate through a system that puts you in a position where now you are a green light executive and you can make these decisions. And behind you is a junior executive that looks like you. And behind them is an assistant that's tracking to potentially become the person to take you over. So there's a real, you know, there's a real um, sort of like a guard, uh, what would you call it in professional sports? You know, you would have your triple A league and your double A league. You would have uh, a place for where you go back and get these players. So that's something that really needs to be created and, and, and supported in our business uh, soup to nuts. And then we will have all of these voices and you won't be talking about, well, why aren't I there? It's like, well, if you were there as the person in the mailroom who then got to be the assistant, who then got to be the junior executive, who then got to be the executive and got to decide, and you've been through every aspect of this and come through this, that, that that's it. There is a crucible of learning that has to happen, you know, and you have to be able to fail along the way and not have it be, uh, you know, critical and, and, and a death sentence and you're out of there. That's the only way that, you know, you continue to make the farm system work. So that's what we need. We need a better farm system, I think. I agree with you. And it's not just for Hollywood. I think it's for a lot of different industries. Investing in college and grad school is going to ultimately be the solution, but that's a 20 year plan, you know, and that, and that's a lot of thought and a lot of money being put in the ground level to try to fix stuff. That's right. And we, as human beings, uh, generally like to see results happen quickly. And if we don't see it happen fast, we're like, oh, I guess it's not working. Like, you no, know, you may not get to be, you may not get to see the end result of the work that you put in. It doesn't mean that the work isn't necessary. It just means that you have to have to be patient and and patient doesn't mean just sitting back, not doing anything. It means you just have to keep tilling the soil. You got to keep working the thing. Um, yeah. and understand that, you know, the benefit may be down the road. You may not have it. It may be down the road, but you still got to put in the work. So the movie you're most attached to, Hotel Rwanda, for all you put into it and for what it meant? Uh, there's, I mean, I, again, I, I am. I, I look at the the movies that I've had an opportunity to be a part of, and the films that I've been able to help put together from you know on the producer side of it, uh, things I've just been cast in, uh, movies that I've written, things that I've been a part of, and on that in that way, it's hard to pick one. You know, yeah. they're all. Not all of them. There's some that I have no attachment to, but there are others that you know <laughs> really, you know, really stay with me and sit with me. And I have great friends from these experiences that I have. You know, it's still to this day, and and we we have our families have grown together, and you know, we've traveled around the world together outside of the movie. So I've been very blessed and very fortunate to to, to have this career. Um, but Hotel Rwanda is absolutely one of the one of the nearest and dearest uh, projects I've ever been involved in, and not only because of the film itself, but for what you know it fostered outside of outside yeah. of what it sort of ramped up for me outside of the film and how it pulled me into this you know sea of activism that was already happening before I got there, but how I got sort of channeled into that was definitely as a result of the film. What made you gravitate toward doing TV shows because you've done two now? the latest being Black Monday. The material, you know, yes. something that happened too around the period of time that a lot, you know, HBO, Showtime, all of these, these, um, these cable uh, entities happened. And then because how these streamers have just taken off. 
you know, there were things that you could do on TV that you couldn't do in movies anymore. Yeah. Movies all about, you know, four quadrant, you know, flagship, huge cornerstone that had to, you know, communicate to the entire world. Superhero you know, capes. All anything that didn't have to be processed through a very distinct lens that would require you to have to understand more than boom, shwee, you know, the, the big themes could get through, but stuff that you know, anti heroes, characters that were questionable, you know, things that were, weren't were very gray and weren't just black and white. Those movies were harder and harder, uh, they became harder and harder to get greenlit. Uh, so a lot of the artists, a lot of the writers, a lot of the directors, the creatives went to TV because that was that space was wide open at that time. And they were like, come here and do whatever you want. You know, you can be as edgy as you want. This is adult content. You can say whatever you want. And so artists started and it was lucrative and people were making dough. So they're going, well, let me go over here and kind of say these things that I can say in this space that I can't say in in a film. And, you know. They were very encapsulated. You could do it 12 weeks and you had eight months left of your life to, you know, do whatever. You can go do a movie and go do a piece of theater, whatever. Just not do anything. But, you know, it was, it was yeah, I was a very early adopter into that uh, idea. But it was because of the script. I read the script for House of Lies and I was like, this, this kills me. I'm laughing. I can't anticipate where it's going. I've never heard of this industry before. This is brand new to me. It's something that's fascinating to me. And it's, I've shoot 30 minutes from the house and I get to sleep in my own bed. And I loved it. There was, there was no, it checked off every box. There was no reason to say no. And I'm platform, you know, we've always been platform agnostic about that. It doesn't matter where it is. If it's good work and it's, it's good material, like, yeah, I want to do it. We talked to PTA about this. We were saying like is Boogie Nights in 2000. We talked about it with him in 2000, I think beginning of 19. But if that script is in 2020, do they just turn it into a TV series? Is it a 10 episode? I think so. Hulu show or something. I feel like it is, right? I think it is. I think it is. And you could spin off every character, right? <laughs> oh my God. Every character could get their own episode. Yeah. And you could do origin a whole like better call sauce or the way they did with Breaking Bad. You could just go down any of their lives and do a whole side story about how they came into the industry, what happened to them after they left the industry, you know? All of these people, I want to see them older. Yeah. Cause younger. Cause I think Out of Sight also is one that easily could have just been a TV show. It yeah. at least could have been season one and then maybe season two, J Lo goes and has some sort of different adventure. Maybe Clooney's not even in it, but you just it could have kept going. Yeah, Snoop wouldn't have been. He he wouldn't have been in that mom. Yeah, he'd have, he'd have been like, I'm out. <laughs> in the season, but yeah. Yeah, it is it's that. a really interesting time for Hollywood where you where you have awesome IP like that, and I'm not sure what the right place for it is anymore, whether it is a TV series. I think you just have much more latitude in TV. And I think that now it's not a, you know, we used to be like TV. I don't want to do TV. You know, nobody's on that anymore. Nobody's feeling like that. They're like, there's great work in TV. We know it. You know, we've seen it. There's amazing shows on. Um, and some of the best writing is there. Because it's still pretty much studios are making fewer and fewer movies. They're not making more and more movies. And the, the movies that they are, you know, opening up the pocketbook for and that they're bankrolling have to be these big tentpole movies. You know, they, they're trying to hit home runs with the six movies they're going to make a year at a time when they used to make 26. So it's, 
it's a very it's a very different world and i don't see that changing anytime fast like if you don't have a strong streamer if you don't have that kind of platform as a studio you're you're in, you're in trouble every studio has to have that what's it like to be a respected working actor in the zoom era <laughs> it's very busy um you know i just started uh, uh, have a production company that we started last year and this is the one thing that everybody can do during COVID, right? Everyone can still develop. So we're still having tons of Zoom meetings and, you know, putting projects together and having meetings with writers and, and, and just, we're just very busy right now. And, and that's going to be a very interesting thing. Once everybody can go back to work, all of this work that's just sitting here, like everybody's at the starting blocks, like, let's go. Everybody's right. work. Yeah, we have, it's been, now we're in the middle of month four. But you also had stuff that was being filmed that had to stop. Right. Stuff that was about to start filming that now can't film yet. That's right. And only so many actors and crew members and all this stuff. So when we actually can get going, which hopefully will happen at some point over the next four to six months, there's I mean, just gonna be a lot going on. Is it how can it? I don't I don't I don't know how it can. I don't I don't I mean, there are some people that have already gone back. There's some productions that have already gone back. Um, but that bubble concept is very, I I don't know how it's actually going to work. I've seen plans on paper and I, I I understand how the unions are attempting to, uh, pitch the idea of the bubble and safety and these zones and people being able to move in safe ways around. But, you know, you're, unless testing is really robust and, unless you really have a contingency plan for if someone des- does test positive, what do you do if your lead actor tests positive? What do you, you do if a supporting actor tests positive? What do you do if the DP tests positive? What do you do if, you know, th- that's the other thing about a movie or any of these TV shows is that any link in the chain that breaks can be critical, you know? If the costumer goes down. It's like, that affects your show dramatically. Yeah. The hair and makeup team can't, be there. That's huge. You know, the boom operators aren't there. There's certain people you can slug into place, but not everybody. And it will affect the quality of, of the piece. And what is, you know, AIG just going to like underwrite the thing and pay for everything and go, okay, you guys can reboot and we'll just underwrite this thing for another 15 million. Go ahead, go again. No, I imagine they'll, they'll, there'll be a claim and they'll, it'll be force majeure and the movie will go down and they'll be like, well, we did that. I don't see how you keep going. I mean, I guess the NBA has a, an idea that they're just going to keep going if, you know, somebody tests positive and they're just going to slug another player in or they're just go light, but they're not going to stop is I think what they're planning. I don't, that, that's not the same in, in, a, in a movie or a TV show. You can't just pass the rock to anybody else in a TV show. It's a great point. I, I was going to add to that, that like in the NBA, they're almost treating it like a sprained ankle. Exactly. Where if like, Anthony Davis gets it. He's just out for two weeks and he has to quarantine all that. But if you, if you got it on your TV show, there's no guy who can come in and play your part. It's not Broadway. No. Although they, they, uh, that would be an interesting thing to see. <laughs> just, you know, a little bumper before the show starts. Uh, Don is down with COVID. So Jeffrey Wright will not be playing the part. <laughs> well, we wish Don all the best. They do that Scorsese face swap, like uh, whatever that digital stuff, just put somebody else's face on you. It doesn't cost anything. That's so cheap. (laughs) Everybody could afford to do that. 
Yeah, so you're pessimistic. I, I'm deep down pessimistic, but trying to be optimistic. Is that pessimistic or is it just realistic? I mean, I don't, I think it's just real. I, I, I think now actors will start having a lot of pressure put on them because, you know, I don't go back to work. 300 people don't go back to work. It's not just me not going back to work. You know, I don't, I don't, the show doesn't start back up. Uh, so there will be a lot of pressure put on actors in my position to come back. But it, it, quite honestly, unless there is some plan that gives us a real, you know, sense of, of, of safety and security, is it, is it really worth it? You know, it's not, I don't know. We have these talks every day. We have these, you know, discussions every day. And, and, and what are you willing to take it on for? You know, we were all quarantined and then George Floyd happens and millions of people are in the streets. And I was one of them. So it was important enough for me to be in that environment and to, to go out there and, 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 and protest. But does that translate? Is it important enough for you then to go back to work? And there was obviously there were no there was no zones and there was no protection and there was no uh, idea that we would somehow be safe. We were outside. Uh, everybody and the one I was with was masked up. We had goggles on. There was no social distancing. So I guess you're picking the thing that it that it matters for you to to be a part in. Um, but that was that that was raised that the, the, the importance of that was raised to me much higher than creating a show again. Although I understand people going, I've got to go to work. I need to make money. I have to feed my family. I have to pay rent. Those are absolutely very real considerations as well. Yeah. I guess the, the only thing that sports has beyond everything that you just mentioned is there's a clock to it with the seasons and the history of it where you have like somebody, you know, like LeBron and his, you know, this might be his last great liquor season. It might yeah. be the last great season he ever has. And there's such a fear, I think, not just with the athletes and the teams and the commissioner and all that stuff, but even with the fans, like, well, fuck, we're just not going to have an NBA season. Like we, we have no winner. We need, we need finalization, but with TV and movies and even music, you know, you, that stuff can always, that stuff doesn't have the same kind of urgency. I don't feel like, you know, yeah, it, it, I agree. And it's, but it is somewhat bizarre, right? That totally it, that you would we would be beholden to some sort of historical precedent about what we need to experience this, you know, cathartic. We need this cathartic win or loss so that we can validate what I mean, you know, so that we right. can. We're fans, and we're you know, I I understand that because some of that is also you know, kind of baked into our DNA of having these you know, communal experiences through, you know, these proxy battles. So we don't have to have these real battles and these, you know, proxy wars between these gladiators. I understand that. But we are also obviously not very uh, adept at looking at clearly what's happening in the world. It's like that all would make sense if there wasn't a pandemic, but there is. So it's like yeah. that. And it has to take precedent. And I know we're not used to it. And I know we've never been here before. We know none of us were alive. At, well, some of us were alive during the Spanish flu. But, you know, most of us were not alive during that period of time. But I wish people would look at the patterns because it's, it's, it's exactly the same. You know, 
people going enough of this and basically saying we need freedom we need our rights back and coming out and then it was a huge second wave that took out more people than the first wave did so we're kind of doing the exact same playbook uh and even greater numbers of people on the planet because there's more of us now so it's i think we're and we're hard-headed. So, you know, this is going to be a lesson that we're, that's going to need to be beaten into us. And it seems like we're on, on the path to having it beaten into us. Um, so it's, it is tricky. And yes, there's a ticking clock not only on the audience's desire to have some sort of a win-loss or, you know, a crown a victor. But there's also a ticking clock on these players' bodies, you know? Totally. They're not all, like you said, LeBron is, I think he could play for a few more years and I think he does too. But yeah, he's older than he was last year. He'll be older next year. Uh, and there is a momentum, obviously, that happens in sports. And there's a groove that you find. And, and the Lakers were in their groove. They were flowing. So yes, there's a desire for them to finish the goal, for, to get to the, to the end and see what's going to happen. But there's still going to be an asterisk around it, no matter what happens. It's going to be a shortened season. It's going to be a season that... You know, not all teams participated in. So it's, it's, and what's happening with baseball right now? It's like every sport is really dealing with it in a real way. Yeah. And I think, like you said, the athletes and their own mortality of their careers, I think is driving some of the decisions too. Whereas maybe actors, directors can afford to wait and and not have those same kind of stakes. But I'm with you. I, 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 I've changed my mind so many times on this thing. And I really thought the NBA bubble thing was going to work. And then the more you read about it and it's like, yeah, the workers can go in and out and, and it's like, well, wait a second, that's not a bubble. And you just, you start poking holes in it. Yeah. The, the only bubble is literally if you all stay in the same facility and play in the same, same facility and then go back to the same facility and there are guards all around. So nobody can leave. I mean, cause all it takes is one person to leave or one yeah. person in and now you've pierced the bubble and that that great experiment goes south and like i like i said as soon as what happens as soon as one person tests positive and we're not even and and people can say anything they want to say on paper like yeah i'll keep playing but there's going to be some players are going to be like yeah i know what i said but my wife called and she said get your ass home it's a wrap (laughs) you know you got kids and a family you can't this is a very serious illness this is not a joke People are going down and it's skewing now younger and younger. So it's nothing to be trifled with. And you do have to ask yourself at the end of the day, what's, what's really important, you know, is it, isn't it, isn't it more important that we try to be closer to Europe and be closer to these places that are seeing, seeing it turn around because they got super aggressive about it early Again, that's what we're talking about. We want stuff now. And, and, and it's particularly an American thing. Like, I want my shit and I want it right now. Because, damn it, I'm free. I woke up free in this free country. And if I can get it, I want it. It's like, to the de- detriment of everybody? <laughs> it's like, you, we have to be more responsible than that. Well, it's the narcissist culture, right? Well, we're number one in swag, right? It's like, hey, man, I did this for three months. I'm only 26. I want to go out. I need to live my life. Like, All right. Well, yeah. the virus isn't gone yet. No, it's waiting for you. It'll, it'll be at the club when you get there. Yeah, enjoy. Yeah. Um, last question. I'm not going to ask you who the best actor you ever worked with is. I'm going to ask you, who was the most impressive actor? Who was the one that you crossed, male or female, that you were just like, 
man, I get it. I get it. I get why this person was so successful. Oh, they also have to be a successful actor? No, they don't have to be successful. Successful to you as an actor. Well, I mean, again, I, I think I've had a great... I've worked with very talented people, obviously. I know. That's why I ask. Very, very lucky. And it's hard to pick one. You know, Denzel is obviously a great actor and was great to work with and to 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 watch close up. Um, Chiwetel Ejiofor, uh, great actor. Um, Jeffrey Wright, really strong, really, really good actor. Uh, Julianne Moore, amazing, amazing actor. Philip Seymour Hoffman, obviously. John C. Riley, another great actor. Yeah. Uh, all these all right. really, really, really strong and, and, and can do anything, you know, very facile, good at comedy, good at drama, can really, can really do it all. And, and I've, yeah, I'm, I, I'm a very lucky dude in that way. All right. I'm audibly in the question. I should have known you weren't going to totally answer it. Okay, go, you, go. you catch Denzel when he is Denzel. He is who he is. It wasn't like you, oh, this is the early, he's not quite Denzel yet. It's like, no, no, he's Denzel now. Yeah. And, and you're sharing scenes with him and scenery and hanging out with him between scenes and all that stuff. And this guy is an icon. What was that like? I was so, uh, I was so, I don't know if intimidated is the, is the right word, but I was definitely on my P's and Q's. I was definitely very serious during uh, the filming of Devil in a Blue Dress. I would always stay in character. I was always in costume. I wouldn't. I wasn't hanging out on the set as as Don Cheadle between takes, just hanging out. I do my scenes, and I would usually go back to my trailer and 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 breathe. Or I, I was super focused during that movie, and my whole sort of mo as playing his best friend was just to have his back. And I think if you watch the movie, even in the moments where it's like, I'm just there and not, there's nothing, I'm not doing anything. My whole MO, because I, 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 I forget these things, you know, this is a long time ago. I think I caught part of it on TV the other day. And I was watching one of the scenes and I was like, I was standing behind Denzel and he's in the scene and I'm looking around. I was like, what am I doing? I was like, oh yeah, I'm like, I'm checking corners and I'm like, I'm just, I'm just watching his back. I was so 100 about the thing because it was Denzel Washington, because I was like, oh my God. I cannot mess this one up. You know, this one, I have to really bring everything. And uh, I'd worked with Carl before on student film that he had done at AFI. So that was really uh, helpful. And he was great, great director and not was, is a great director and was really, and directed me very specifically and, and very well. So that was a, that was an amazing experience. Um, but yeah, definitely that that that's one of them. That's one of the jewels. That's one of the. That's a, I'm very proud of that movie. I did a podcast with him once where I went to see him in a hotel room, and it's one of the pods I'm proud of because he's intimidating. He just yeah. is. He's actually like almost too famous. Yeah, and yeah. you're talking to him, and I felt the same way when I interviewed Larry Bird too, where it's just like you're, you're right. actually too famous. I don't know. It just feels weird to be in the room with you, you know, yeah. and. When I did uh, when I did Countdown with Magic, and it felt that way for a little while, especially because he's gigantic. He's 6'9". Yeah. 
And then after a while, it's just like, oh, it's magic. You think he, you know, he he became normalized after a while. But Denzel and Larry Bird, it was not normal. I never felt normal for a minute. No, magic is very disarming. Magic. Yes. You just feel like I can be this dude's friend. You know, it's like no, you can't. He's magic. <laughs> he's Magic Johnson. <laughs> can't be his friend. But he's a very yeah. He's very approachable. They're they're different dudes. But yeah. you know, Denzel, when we did flight. Uh, we hadn't seen each other in a long time, hadn't talked to each other in a long time. And we were getting ready to do a scene and we just started reminiscing, telling old stories. And, and uh, there was another actor on set that he had worked with and the three of us were just kind of hanging out. And at one point we looked up, we're like, are we going to shoot? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, my agent was visiting and I said, what, why were we not shooting? We were, I thought we were just ready to shoot. He said, the people were just loved that you guys were having a personal moment and having a conversation and they just didn't want to break up. You guys were having a great time. They just wanted to let it go as long as it was going to go. So, yeah. So, yeah. You also don't interrupt Denzel. Yeah. He's a large, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's probably true. That was a good movie. I actually, that was one of my favorite Denzel performances. Cause yeah, he, he was, he was kind of like losing control of the steering wheel Denzel, which I always like when he goes in that direction. But anyway, <laughs> It was uh, it was fun to finally talk to you. I really admired your career and a lot of the stuff you've done, and it's been really fun to watch it grow and all the good things that have happened. Tell tell the audience about um, Black Monday really quickly. Oh yeah, Black Monday. I think we're back on the twenty eighth. Um, uh, we we did go down in post production uh, because of COVID, but we were able to get all of our post production stuff done and got all our effects in and music and color colorization and everything's happening. So. The, it, and, and we're coming back on a strong episode, too. So it's really funny and really over the top. And just, I think, what the doctor ordered for this uh, quarantine experience we're having right now. So your sweet spot is a drama that's actually secretly seriously funny. Or, or something that's seriously funny that then has some real deep downbeat. That's <laughs> All right, got it. <laughs> uh, Don Cheeto, thank you. This is great. Appreciate you, man. All right.